Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are doing the 47th Best Picture winner, The Godfather Part 2. <sighs> yeah, big size Godfather. all around. Godfather. <laughs> yep. The Godfather Part 2 is a 1974 American crime epic directed by Francis Ford Coppola, Screenplay written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, who, if you remember from our first episode on The Godfather Part 1, or as it was known at the time, just The Godfather, uh, Puzo is the one who wrote the 1969 novel The Godfather, upon which the movie trilogy was based. It stars Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Robert De Niro, which is a new name to the cast, and a good Talia addition, Shire. In my opinion. um one of the better ones for sure um i think we disagree a little bit on his performance but i would definitely say i thought he was one of the better performances of the film (laughs) this movie uh, won and was nominated for a lot of stuff francis ford coppola won for best director al pacino was nominated for best actor but did not win thank goodness when, I know. I we basically our um opinions on Pacino's performance have not changed since our original. I was our so on the hopeful original. too because I'm like, okay, you had I two more too. years of growth at your fingertips. I I really wonder if, and I'm not super familiar with Pacino's filmography. I will 100 percent admit that. I wonder if this is just like if it's the part or the script or like the combination of actor director. Like mm-hmm. I just wonder if there's like something missing to like get the performance there that because you know there are some actor directors that you're like oh my god like the way they work together is so amazing and then if you see them working with different people you're like "Eh, it's just not as amazing so I don't know if there was if there's just like something there that's like means that there's no spark in that performance for us um Mm -hmm. Robert De Niro won for best supporting actor Michael V. Gazzo was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor at, for his role as Frank. You say it again because I Pentangeli, I think. <laughs> Pentangeli. Okay, cool. Um, I'm I'm not great with Italian pronunciation or Americanized Italian pronunciation. I guess for some just reason f- I'm discovering. It's fine. I'm gonna just go. I'm just gonna go, go for, for it. it, you guys. <laughs> um, if I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna fail big. Also nominated for Best Supporting Actor was Lee Strasberg, who played Hyman Roth. Um, and I thought he did a very good job. Yeah, I actually I did like, like Hyman Strasberg. Roth as a both a character and his performance. So a lot of the supporting cast. Okay. Yeah, once again, supporting cast did, did a pretty good job. Um, I actually really wanted Hyman Roth to take down Michael Corleone. <laughs> I was cheering for him. Would have been an I interesting turn of events would have been great and I would have loved it so much more and maybe I wouldn't have felt like I wasted three plus hours of my life that I can never get back if anyone knows where to submit a refund let me know Talia Shire was also nominated for best supporting actress which and I like her a lot like I'm a big Talia Shire fan but she was barely on screen and they did not give her much to work with and by not much basically nothing yeah like she did well with what she was given but I just it's it did not feel like enough for a supporting actress nomination especially because madeline khan was nominated for blazing saddles that year 
Oh, and that was such a good performance. Yeah. Well, Inger, the person who won that category was Inger Bergman for Murder on the Orient Express. So Talia Shire didn't win for that category, but I am a little surprised by the nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, just given like what little amounts of screen time she had and the fact that what even what she had like wasn't that meaty. Yeah. I wonder if this was some like halo effect with the Godfather brand. Oh, I'm sh- oh, so, all of these just all of these were a halo effect. <laughs> all of these were a halo effect from the Godfather brand and all of the hype it caused and the money the first one made. For sure, 100%. It was it won best adapted screenplay, which hmm, won for best art direction, which I will totally give it. Was nominated for costume design and won for best original score, which I will also give it, although I felt like there was a lot of moments without score and I wanted more of the score cuz when it had the score, I liked it. Yeah. Especially during the Vito Corleone segments. Like, I loved the way they went, like, even more traditional with that part of the score. I will say they used some of the same tricks from the first movie, like, specifically within the hospital scene from the first movie. And, like, kind of, I thought, almost overdid it in some of these more suspenseful areas. But it's still good. It, yeah. And if the cinematography had matched the score in those mm-hmm. moments, I don't think it would feel as overdone. Mm-hmm. Other than Oscars, so they got several nominations for various American Film Institute top 100 lists, or was on various lists, also had a few other like additional nominations. Um, it was number 32 on AFI's top 100, both the original list and the revised list. Michael Corleone is the number 11 villain, which, you know what? That I will give you. Yeah, he... I hate him. I hate that character He's so much. He's the worst. The line, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, is number 58 on AFI's top quotes. And it is the number three gangster film, which I'm rolling my eyes at. Because I'm going to be very upfront. I I know we talked in our first episode how I had heard people say the second one was actually better. I heartily disagree. I think the first Godfather is much, much better than the second one. And I'm not a huge fan of either. Yeah, I think the what little arc we got from Michael in the first film was better than the seeming complete lack of arc here and just the I'm going to continue to be destructive and self-preserving at the expense of everything. Well, I didn't really... So the first one, it's like we both agreed that they didn't deliver on the Michael arc that we were kind of like promised, but we knew what they were trying to do. Like we knew what the film was trying to show us. I don't even know what this one was trying to accomplish. At a certain point, I was like, I don't... Like what are you even trying to tell me because I, I, you can't hold my interest long enough to tell it to me. And I'm not even sure what you want. Yeah. For other sure. nominees. For, yeah. Other nominees for that year. And then we'll go straight into our watch notes and get a little bit more into the kind of our, our criticisms on it. Um, other nominees were Chinatown, which is what I wish we had gotten to watch. It is a great noir, the conversation Lenny and the towering inferno. Lenny and the towering inferno sounds like a very fun film. Uh, there are two separate films. They're two separate films. So it's oh, Lenny. Oh, I really wish that the- it was one film now. <laughs> I kind of do too. I know what the Towering Inferno is, but I don't know what Lenny is. I'm going to look it up later. And it see just makes what me think of, of like that Gem been. and the Holograms, but less. <laughs> Lenny and the Towering Inferno. All right. Well, watch notes. Yeah, sounds good. So I think what uh, we basically decided that we're going to do is um, kind of split out the Vito Corleone part of this and the Michael Corleone part in the film it's actually interspersed and I can kind of see hints where 
Coppola was trying to like draw parallels between the father's struggle and the son's struggle, I honestly didn't think it really paid off. Oh, I disagree because there is absolutely nothing about Michael that is a sympathetic character at all. But there are things about Vito that are a sympathetic character. And also, Mm -hmm. like, honestly, I would have really enjoyed the film, I think, if it had only been about Vito and if it had really been about, like, watching how Mm -hmm. he, like, created that power base in Rose. Because as as you watch Vito's story, while I did want a little bit more from De Niro's performance of him, I know you disagreed. All I'm going to say is, guys, quote, unquote, stoic (laughs) main characters does not make for engaging cinema at all we got more emotion mm-hmm. though from him than we ever got from pacino in either of the godfathers but in um, an absolute well, sense more, still more not genuine a lot. feeling emotion mm-hmm. yeah agreed uh still not a lot but we get to see him you know building this power base and we really understand where he comes from and like mm-hmm. his struggles and like the influences from a very young age, beginning with the opening of the film. Well, actually, no, no, no. The first shot of the film... <laughs> was useless. Was stupid. Yeah, it was just, what, somebody kissing Michael Corleone's hand? It's like a reshot of the end of The Godfather, and it's really dumb that they use that shot and then immediately cut over to Sicily and young Vito when they should have opened with the stuff with Vito in Sicily and not had any of that on-screen text, which told us everything we were about to learn in, like, the next three scenes. So we didn't need it at all. Like, they literally could have been, like, Sicily and the year or something, and we would have 100% gotten it. Because it's this shot of, like, a funeral procession, Mm -hmm. and partway through the funeral procession, somebody we can't see opens fire on it, and everyone scatters. And younger boy, which the paragraphs of on-screen text have told us is Vito's brother, is killed. Mm -hmm. And we know from the paragraphs of on-screen text that it is Vito's father, and that was the funeral that was happening. All of that we could have gathered from the conversation (laughs) that happens in the next scene where his mother is going to the, like, Sicilian Dawn that had her husband and eldest son killed. Mm -hmm. And like basically trying to bargain for Vito's life because she knows that he's next. Yeah. And again, she tells us everything the paragraphs of on-screen text just told us. Yes, I 100% agree that that was superfluous. I I, like from a a more visual perspective, I did actually kind of like the funeral scene just because yeah, it's I like all right you are scrambling across these rocks I felt so bad for the musicians well, and the only two people <laughs> yeah the only two people left kneeling by the coffin are mm-hmm. Vito and his mom so like that the way that sequence was shot mm-hmm. I really liked it is some of the better parts very few bright spots of cinematography <laughs> for me on this one um but I liked that sequence and I also loved the part with Don Don Chicho where she is trying to bargain there. And I was so hoping that she was going to just put a bullet in his head. So hoping. I know she doesn't. She like threatens to like, cause he's clearly, he's saying like her whole argument is like Vito is a sweet boy. He would never hurt anyone. Mm -hmm. Like he's just a child. He's like, yeah, well children grow up into men who seek revenge. Right. The beginning of the very patriarchal focus of this film again. 
again, I, I think this really was a stronger start than the rest of the film, though. I agree. The part I where Vito is escaping to the the one I know, shot where that his really... mom has the dawn at knife point, mm-hmm. and then she's going Vito run. run, and then they like push her off, or she like lets the guy go, and then they shoot her, yeah. and I'm like, I, she should have just let her. Throw. She should have. I wish she should've. had. I want to see a woman fight back in this film at all. Yeah, no one, no one in did. this franchise at all. But the sequence through that town of Corleone where the henchmen are trying to find young Vito and the escape scene with the donkey. The one shot that stands out to me is in front of, I believe, a church where the two henchmen are talking about it. And you have the dude just walking by with the donkey that we know has Vito in it. So that was some really cool filmmaking. Yes, but they had also cut back and forth between that hen- those henchmen, like, just talking, like, a million mm-hmm. times. So, again, needed to be trimmed. Yeah. This film should not have been three and a half, three <laughs> hours, what, like, three hours, 15 minutes? Ugh. Well, fortunately, the entire transatlantic journey is trimmed. So, we only get to see the part about uh, arriving in the harbor in New York and seeing and the Ellis Statue Island. of Liberty. I actually found this part very interesting. Agreed. with And the way it was shot with all of the Ellis Island stuff. So, again, like... If we had just stayed focused on Vito, I would have enjoyed this film so much more <laughs> because I found his story interesting. I, the the child mm. actor needed to give a little bit more, but like watching him go through Ellis Island and like he has smallpox and they have to quarantine him. Mm-hmm. So topical. Like all of, <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. But it was like all very like interesting. And it also, I felt like, gave you further understanding and background of Vito as a character and Mm -hmm. it made everything that happened later make sense it's almost like if you have a main character who's going to do morally questionable things you should kind of like give the context of their life and their personality Mm -hmm. and a change and maybe show it like develop and change in a way so that we as an audience can either mourn the loss of a good character or understand the development of a bad character it's almost like character development is like really important to a main character or really any character I mean, you know? I think you're wrong, but that's fine. I, I'm kidding. <laughs> the non-veto parts of this film would agree with that statement, apparently. And and I again want to point out that the way that this was shot, and for example, this panning across the arrival hall with all of these immigrants coming in from the boat and getting checked in by customs agents and then going through the health checks like the way it was put together I found to be dynamic engaging like the scale of things were impressive interesting it wasn't just static shots of people of like it wasn't static shots of a bunch of like men especially old men talking about shit that I don't give a fuck about (laughs) sorry you guys my sass levels at like a million (laughs) today so it, it ends with him in his quarantine room just staring out at the I think the Statue of Liberty yeah, and he starts singing like a song from his homeland. It's mm-hmm. really sweet. Because he's he's also there like 100% alone. Yeah, which is amazing that he was le- not as terrified, didn't look more terrified. I want to know if they, I'm assuming that there was somebody there to like pick him up. Because I wonder if they would have just let like an unattended child. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, maybe. It's like the early 1900s. They were probably like, ooh, child labor, perfect. So we do move to present day. But we're going to not do that in the way we talk through this. So yeah, we're going to we'll cover every Vito thing first and then let's get back to the rest of this. So when we revisit Vito again, he is a young adult introduced to the fact that he is married. He has a kid, Fredo, um, who we know from the first film. It's Sonny first. It is? I thought it was Fredo. The first kid they have is Sonny. Sonny's the eldest. It goes Sonny, Fredo, Michael. Okay, I'm super confused then because there was another scene where Fredo as an infant had pneumonia 
Yeah, but that's later. Okay. I think the first time when they just have one child, I think it's Sunny. Okay, well then it's Sunny. <laughs> so we get some of this introduction of he is he's trying to be a hardworking immigrant, do his thing in the the little Italy part of New York where most of that immigrant community lived at the time. Don't get too much. It's the development theater here. scene first, though, right? Uh, this is the theater scene. Uh, it's in this part where we get the theater scene um, with his. The theater scene was super superfluous. They didn't need it because originally you think it's going to mm-hmm. be in order to introduce like the like heavy in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, Finucci. But then they explain who Finucci is in the next scene in the like butcher shop cafe. Yeah, and that I mean that scene too just begins. The dismaying theme of using women as props and violence against women as ways to, quote, shock and awe. This point onward, and I meant to say it at the top, massive, massive content warning for this on violence against women. Um, It's, you know, we saw it in the first one. We've seen it in other films, but Mm -hmm. it is especially bad in this one. So just humongous trigger warning on that for people. Yes. So I, I agree that that could have could have been completely cut and I don't think I don't think we would have lost any of Fanucci's ruthlessness because no because we see it demonstrated in the execs yeah yeah later on so we didn't need him holding the the theater owner's daughter at gunpoint knife or it's at knife point Yeah. yeah we didn't need that at all and I was like kind of hoping that like Vito would do something because mm-hmm. like his friend his friend who's supposedly in love with this girl won't do anything and I was hoping that Vito would and so then we could see like a oh he came in as this like very moral mm-hmm. wanting to do good person and then becomes what we know he becomes later but like he doesn't do anything he's just like who's yeah, that he's guy a bystander and then we again in the next scene get to see how shitty Finucci is and they exactly. also tell us how shitty Finucci is in the next <laughs> scene too because this is the one where Vito is fired because Finucci wants his nephew to work at the the grocer yeah and I mean the the grocery proprietor is apparently behind on his protection payments to Finucci and all of this so it's and he's very apologetic to Vito and Vito mm-hmm. Vito takes it like he he's like you know what i get it because the guy's having a hard time like telling him and Vito's like no no no. i i understand the situation i understand that there's kind of nothing you can do and that's okay like you've been a very kind boss to me i won't forget that and this is the first of the i won't forget which this is how we see Vito building a power base he doesn't Mm -hmm. this and then kind of the subsequent scenes we're going to talk to are where I see the biggest difference between Vito and Michael because I understand why people follow Vito like I understand how he is able to amass the power and the loyalty because clearly he has earned it and I mean even even in this scene he goes so far as to turn down the grocer's like offer of a box of food for his family so it's like very clear that Vito has some sort of I don't know if it's pride or some sort of idea of what right and wrong and fair is, but he's basically like, I think there's an element of strategy to it though, too. I think he knows how powerful the favor is. Like, I I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't think Vito's like a needlessly mean person. Mm -hmm. Like he goes after Finucci, but like that kind of is better for a lot of people at that point. Instead, he's like building favors. So I feel, I feel like, yes, it's, it's partially that he's just not, an asshole but Mm -hmm. it's also partially like a strategy and an understanding of like how powerful 
that loyalty is and how powerful it is to like have somebody owe you a favor. Yeah. And you see that in the sequence where he has thrown a bundle of what we come to find out are, are handguns from his neighbor. And this is, I, I honestly, this is another scene that I think I loved it in the bathroom, in the bathtub when he unwraps the package. When he's, and, when he just sees it and there's the kind of look mm-hmm. on his face like, But shit. again, <laughs> the acting there and the way that was filmed and edited, really good, I thought. Yeah. No, that I liked. And I liked De Niro's performance there. I do have to say, I felt like De Niro was trying to put on a Marlon Brando voice a lot of the time <laughs> where he was going like kind of quiet oh, and raspy. Sure. And I was like, which I hated because I was like, young Vito wouldn't sound like that. Young Brando didn't sound like that. <laughs> like that's an, that's the old man I've smoked 10 packs a day mm-hmm. for 50 years voice. Like young Vito should not be quiet raspy. I wanted, I wanted a little bit more life from him, a little bit more zazz. I mean, he had a very sad childhood, so I'm not surprised that he's acting like a middle-aged man as a 20-year-old. Touch more zazz, but just like a a touch more zazz, Ian. Just a touch. Zazz? Just zazz. Some pizzazz. (laughs) I'm going to forever abbreviate that now to zazz. (laughs) Yeah. Just a little bit. But that favor uh, of taking those firearms comes back immediately where they steal one of Fanucci's carpets. <laughs> I, well, he's got his friend who's always like dressed to the nines with his like bowler mm-hmm. hat and stuff and is like, oh, my friend like has this like beautiful carpet that I think your wife would love. And he's like, oh, well, I don't really have any money to buy a carpet. Like I'm mm-hmm. out of work. And he's like, well, no, no, no. Like it's, it's a gift because like you hid those guns from me. And I love that the <laughs> friend is like putting up the pretense that like this is his friend's house. And you can tell Vito like, half knows that it's not as they like break in and they're walking around this really nice house and he's like so this is uh this is your friend's place and the guy's like Mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally what a palace you know yeah what a palace and they go to steal the rug and then you have the cop who like kind of comes to the door to investigate Mm -hmm. and i did like this shot of the friend on one side of the doorway with the gun aimed at the entrance so like if the cop comes through that second door Mm -hmm. he's done he's gonna shoot the cop and um the guy doesn't like we just see the shadow yeah and i honestly think that was effective in kind of building up how rough and tumble the crowd that uh, Vito is getting involved with is and how Vito's not there yet because it's not Vito doing it right Vito's he's just like kind observing. of edging away and hiding but he's he is watching and taking mm-hmm. notes exactly i still wanted like a little bit more of like a fear or what the fuck from mm-hmm. Vito, but unlike the film we did last week where our our outlaw anti-heroes were allowed to have emotions and fear apparently in these movies people are not allowed to have fear or emotions unless they're yelling and slapping women yeah we'll get to that that pretty much is the end of that that little flashback there gets more modern day and then fast forward a little bit of time i don't know how much but Vito and his new group of buddies the two buddies one of whom uh was the one who well first we have the scene in the car with Fanucci. yes but they have this dress business and that is why he is in the car delivering that. Fanucci's like, you better pay me protection money. I also hear you stole yeah. my carpet. <laughs> also, Fanucci is just insufferable. Oh, yeah. But someone like that is 100% insufferable. Yeah. But Vito's, Vito's not promising him anything. Mm-mm. But this is where I love you. You see kind of the cogs turning in Vito's head because he knows he can kind of manipulate the situation to come out in his and his friend's favor. And so, I mean, it takes some convincing with the the dinner scene where he's like, just trust me, just trust me, just trust me. And they finally come around. I do wish because 
Vito kind of goes into like being willing to kill pretty quickly and I feel like we never saw like when he became okay with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could argue that like with you know having seen his father and his brother die, you know, he didn't need But like as much but of a like push. not killing, yeah, but like just cuz when he kills uh Fanucci, it's not like it's not like for revenge, you know? Like it's I mean it's, you know, quote unquote business. So I just kind of wish that we had gotten to see what kind of like I don't know, made him okay with it or something. Yeah. That was like a one, something that I thought was missing from his storyline. And honestly, if the entire movie had been about him, then I think we would have gotten Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Killing over money just didn't seem to be the logical next step for him in the way it was presented. Cause that is literally what it was over $600. Yeah. But which is the way it was shot. Oh, same. So uh, again, fast forward a little more. It is the uh, festival day where they're parading a statue of Jesus down the road. An effigy? Is that what an effigy is? I, I, maybe. I should know that. I don't. Um, but it's all pinned with like dollar bills. So again, playing on the, like, I, I don't know if it's a stereotype here or the reality of Italian immigrants often being Catholic at that time. I think Catholicism, I think is, I mean, people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's always been like the major religion of Italy post the development of Christianity. And then mm-hmm. I think it's like, so it would have been common with immigrants. Like I, I think that that is like demographic, mm-hmm. that that demographic would tend it to be tracks. Catholic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree. And so we, we get this beautiful cat and mouse sequence with Fenucci keeping up appearances, donating to the church, walking along the street, mm -hmm, talking about how this violent puppet show is too much violence for him. Like again, you couldn't hear Maggie's eye roll just there, but it was spectacular. Um, (laughs) I'm getting really good at them. Y'all and I'm getting a lot of practice during this episode, but interspersed with that, you have Vito on the roof prowling, across like stepping over and the watching Fenucci, and mm-hmm. i love the way they shot that like the rooftop stuff it was like the most dynamic cinematography in the entire film well and it harkened back to the arrival hall scene in ellis island like felt similar minus the crowds so mm, i didn't quite get that vibe i just really liked it um and then of course michael or not michael sorry Vito. god i can't believe it conflated the two <laughs> Vito uh like sneaks down the into the stairwell of mm-hmm. uh Fenucci's apartment building or whatever and um he like turns off the gaslight and he's waiting with the gun wrapped in the towel as like a makeshift silencer and you see Fenucci coming mm-hmm. up the stairs and then he sees Vito and he's like what are you doing here and Vito shoots him and I feel like that sequence of like the coming up the stairs and stuff that feels like a shot I have seen in a lot of like post Godfather gangster mm-hmm. films. I haven't seen as many pre Godfather gangster films. So I can't say if that's something that like the Godfather took from like another film. I guess if it feels kind of, ver- Oh, I bet they took it from vertigo. I'm pretty sure that there's a scene. No, 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 not, ver- not vertigo psycho. Isn't there the scene? There's the scene in psycho where the guy's coming up the staircase and then gets shot. Yeah, this would be... It felt very psycho. It it feels Hitchcock. It feels mm -hmm. Hitchcock. I would say this is a bit Um, of a riff on that, though, because he does make it into his apartment before... Fenucci does before he's shot, and then just collapses in the doorway there. So we didn't get a dramatic, like, roll down the stairs scene, but... Which would have been better. I mean, I feel like shooting him in his apartment is more Vito's style, because it's quieter. I wouldn't call it quiet, but... 
it just feels more. So anyway, Finucci is killed. And the next little check-in we get with Vito, it's clear that he's starting to come up. So we start seeing him being known in the community. This one fruit vendor just gives him some fruit as like, hey, no, it's on the house. Thank you for whatever, whatever, whatever. So And again, like he's gaining notoriety. Not I feel there's probably an element of fear there, but like not through fear, more of just like a reputation for like being the guy who's willing to help his community out and like kind of do what mm-hmm. it takes to but, help his community out within the powerful and rich it is clearly fear because we get a talk with a landlord who's trying to kick out this woman who had a dog it's a whole long story don't really need to get into it anyway she comes to Vito for a favor Vito Mm -hmm. talks with this landlord first time totally brushed off can we also talk about how Vito is definitely a better father than Michael oh absolutely and and spouse because Mm -hmm. he actually like it's his wife's friend and she kind of brings him the case and the woman's like well you know i had this dog that my son loves and he's like well can't we just get rid of the dog and his wife's like no she needs to keep the dog and Mm -hmm. he like listens to her and you can tell to a certain point he's like this is just kind of like i could just give her some money and help her move like Mm -hmm. there's an easier way to fix this but he's willing to listen and like do the hard thing because he cares right and like we saw we we saw earlier him like being really concerned when baby fredo had pneumonia Mm -hmm. and like really Vito, Vito seems to actually care about people and yeah. see them as autonomous human beings to a certain extent. Exactly. And even the the little thing like bringing a pair home to his wife. Like it's it's these small touches and like little thoughts that Vito shows that Michael never never shows. Yeah. So meets with the landlord, gives him, you know, 60 bucks to try and say, "Hey, he, I'm paying for the rent raise that you're trying to push onto this poor woman, so just charge her the same. She's proud. Don't tell her anything about it." Yeah, you know, here's six months in advance. Come see me in another six months. Like, we'll take care of it. But then he's like, she can keep the dog. And the landlord gets mad when he's like, keep the dog. But we get the next scene in the office. And I loved the bumblingness of this landlord. Like, all of a sudden, he is no longer a tough guy. He can't get he's in the door. He's now deferential. Mm-hmm. Like, he realizes after talking to the neighborhood who Vito Because Vito is. told him, he was like, you know, ask around the neighborhood. Ask who I am. And he clearly did because he comes in. He is very apologetic. He is scared. The woman can just have the apartment. There is no rent raise. Of course she can keep the in dog. In fact, there's a reduction in rent of $10 a month. Yeah. So that's where we're like, he has arrived. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's clear from that the social connections and that he has built to build his empire. And I, I kind of love that implied background and would have yeah. loved to have seen it happening more. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved to see like when he becomes like the actual like head of the family because I don't mm-hmm. think we really see him again until we see him in Sicily, right? Correct. So there's kind of like this whole, so we kind of like got to see like the early building of his empire and we got to see them like raising the sign for like the olive oil company that's like the massive mm-hmm. front. But like I wanted to see more, like if the whole film had been about Vito, like we really could have gotten not just like up until like the start of that company and then his revenge in Sicily, like we really could have gotten like becoming the Corleone f- yeah. crime family and and the god know. the Godfather, like yeah, oh, the Godfather, so good. Like I wanted to see the first time somebody called him Godfather, and I don't think we did. Nope, hundred percent did not. 
So as you mentioned, Sicily is the next little bit there. A lot of scenes here with reuniting with family, like it's clear. They were so long and unneeded. And I, and at that point, we are so late in the film. And like at that point too, this was one of the many circumstances where I was like, oh, thank God it's ending. It's ending. And then I would look to see how much time was left. And I was like, fuck, it's not ending. It's not ending. <laughs> Which is fine. It's, again, hammering home the importance it's not fine what do you mean it's fine i'm saying it's fine so that i feel better it's about it it's <laughs> not fine i feel terrible about it i'm so mad about it i'm so low-key mad about it sorry continue i i i don't think you're low-key mad i think you're like actually mad but that's fine i'm really mad but i'm saving <laughs> i'm saving the real anger for like the the part the michael part of the movie yeah. which was most of the movie and which mm-hmm. i hated I do like that it's hammering home the fact that Vito does care about family and like does care about family. And it was so long. Well, yeah, I've accepted that and moved on. (laughs) I refuse to. Bad things happen when good people say nothing, Ian, and I am taking a stand against superfluous montages. I will help join you in that stand just later. (laughs) But the main important thing here is Vito gets his revenge and while they did set it up at the very beginning for this to happen I still appreciated the payoff I would have if I still had any energy left to care by the time we got there oh see I was like full disclosure here I watched pre-intermission in one sitting and post-intermission in another so I watched, like I watched it all at once yeah it was not I was I was refreshed enough to take like revel in the uh, revenge. <laughs> I wasn't. I had trouble sleeping last night. I was so mad at this movie. I was like so keyed up. But no, by the because and and if you know if this had been well, one I saw it coming like mm-hmm. from the oh, very I mean, beginning. Same. I was like, oh, let's just foreshadow more heavily, shall we? This movie tried not as much with the veto plotline, but with the Michael plotline they tried to like be clever a lot and be like oh look a twist and I was like cool you telegraphed that so early and like so much it was not a twist at all (laughs) and it was also even if it had been a twist would have been a lame twist but I think I would have like relished it more and been like happier for Vito if this entire film had been two hours and only about Vito (laughs) and I had gotten to see more of him and so I could have been like more invested in him and he had just been like a little bit more of a like dynamic emotional Mm -hmm. fleshed out character then I think I would have relished it more but by the time we got there I was like okay cool the thing I knew was gonna happen finally happened can we end this now please I will say I loved one the insidiousness of the fact that Vito was doing business with that family one and then two, the visceral, like, stab slash disemboweling of Don Chicho. It was, like, needlessly violent, though. There was a lot of, they really well, tried to up the Well, this whole movie was, like, super violent. They, like, really tried to up the, like, shock factor. And I'm not huge on, like, gore. Well, I don't, like, I'm, like gore much anyway. But, like, when it's particularly used for shock factor and the shock factor isn't, like, look how terrible war is, then I'm not cool with it. Yeah. I of the flashback scenes, I don't think we needed such a violent Finucci death. I was okay with how visceral the Don Chicho killing was because how pers- of how personal it was to Vito. I think it would have been a lot colder if it had just been a very cold killing. But see, I love that it's not. I love that there's some emotion there because it again like 
belies some some like motive. Yeah. Okay. I take I take your point, but I'm still just really unhappy in general. <laughs> So anyway, that's the end of Vito's thing for the most okay, part. Okay, now, like, now we're going to turn to the part where I'm just literally not having anything. I'm just not having any of it. None of it. <laughs> Get ready, you guys. Buckle up. And it's the Michael Corleone thing. So fortunately, we do not open with a wedding, but we do open with a first communion in Michael It Corleone is the wedding. Storyline. It is the exact same. Sorry, I need to back away from my mic. I'm about to yell. It is basically the exact same scene <laughs> as the first movie. Like... Don't repeat the first 30 minutes of the first movie, which was also a massive drain on my life and mostly a waste of time, but somehow better than this. I don't... It was the exact same thing, Ian. It was the exact (laughs) same thing. We sat through like three hours of part one and nobody learned a fucking thing about not having really long parties that mean nothing about how to introduce a lot of characters in a non-confusing way slash just cut down on the amount of characters you have slash none of the characters learned jack shit from the experiences that we went through the first time. I hate everybody and everything. I was disappointed with how it started. I do think that it was more efficient than the first film's introduction. That doesn't mean that it is in absolute terms a good way to introduce everybody. So like, we got the the one senator. We got an understanding of the Hyman Roth thing. We'll get back to that senator at another point, but literally he that character is fucking useless. It's, like, it's a useless nothing. character. They literally just use him to... Well, you know what? We'll just say it now and just get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. Here's like the really bigger big trigger warning. He's like trying to squeeze Michael in this first scene mm-hmm. and being like, oh, no, you're going to pay me all this money to get that license because I don't like you and I'm going to do things above board. He later kills a sex worker in an establishment owned by Fredo, kills her very, like, no, mur- just straight up murders well, her very violently. Here's the thing, and it makes it worse. I don't think, I think he was set up. I think it was the crime family who did that. And that just makes it so much worse. I don't care who it was, the whole way that, like, that entire plot line never never means anything it never comes to fruition because like tom like basically is like oh here's what it's gonna do is you're gonna do whatever we Mm -hmm. say and we're gonna like get you out of it they treat the sex worker like just non-entity and non-human it's incredibly violent it is visually shocking i was physically nauseous during that scene um because of not only the visuals but all of the like just the way that they were treating that character just being like the cherry on top of the misogynistic shit pile that had been the rest of the movie up until that point. Mm -hmm. And I just like, couldn't, couldn't handle it. But also like that entire character and that entire plot line should not be in the movie at all. It is not needed. It doesn't show you anything you didn't already know about how awful these people are. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have anything to do with any sort of goal in the film, which speaking of goals, nobody has any, this entire time there are no stakes in this movie i have no idea what anyone's trying to seriously accomplish like just general mayhem and like quote unquote business i guess i don't know fuck that but anyway it was just it was so disturbing and needless and shouldn't have been in the film at all and is purely done for shock value and i'm not okay with it yeah completely agree senator even comes back near the end toward the hearings and does nothing Totally agree that that storyline was completely unneeded and didn't really add. And in fact, detracted in major, major ways. Yep. So. Such BS. Anyway. Oh, I shortened bullshit there, but not anywhere else. So 
that's Senator Peace. The other, other, I guess, main Michael storyline is with Hyman Roth, who is a... Which is what I think was supposed to be the main part of the movie. Yeah, that's it's going to be like his main business storyline. That was in air quotes, if you couldn't tell. It like goes, it's like, because it's set up as like a, once again, a story of revenge, because the first one was Michael's story of revenge over his father and his brother, I guess. The second one, it's like somebody tries to kill Michael, which like shocker, he's so surprised, like mildly surprised and indignant that someone would shoot at him and his home where his wife and children, his possessions, wife and children, not people who he genuinely loves or cares about wife and children are also there even though he has had multiple people like he is backstabbed had multiple people killed in their homes and threatened and hurt their wives and children so it's okay for him to do but when somebody does it to him ian oh my god now we have to sit through three plus hours of him going through his convoluted revenge plot somebody please introduce this man to occam's razor come on but also when you're that terrible you're not allowed to be surprised when people come after you like you just kind of at certain point got to be like you got to cop it you just got to be like well i did do all of those terrible things i'm surprised Mm -hmm. it's taken this long for someone to come after me yeah well i the the only the only thing that i will give it maybe a little bit of credit is the fact that it's on this like heavily guarded compound so that shows that there's someone inside that's like betrayed him which again Sh- shouldn't again, be surprised shocker honestly i'm again i'm surprised it's taken this long i'm surprised we haven't had a full like coo coo not like just an attempted one person here or there i'm surprised that like Kay and tom and fredo and uh connie haven't all banded together and just like killed him beforehand because they all hate him everybody hates him everybody thinks he's going insane i don't understand why people are loyal to him which we just talked about how apparent they make it how Vito kind of like has in his storyline like creates the space of power and these connections with like people in the community michael's done none of that right like he's just volatile and dangerous and frankly a lot of the stuff he's doing isn't that good for business anyway like he's just terrible and i don't understand why people are still loyal to him and agreed like why why should why should i care i don't have an answer for that because i also don't care (laughs) so Kay had some wonderful hot takes though about the we're going to be legitimate in five years and it's been seven and i'm like Kay, i like you It took it takes Kay two entire movies to grow a backbone, and I'm not here for it. There are just the thing that frustrates me about Kay. I like her a lot better at the end of this movie. There's a scene in particular I want to talk about Kay where I actually kind of came around on Kay, but like in general, it's just like because of the I'm so frustrated with her in the first movie because there were like a million red flags, and she must have like color like red green color blindness because she waltzed by every single one of them. <laughs> Well, until at the very end when she finally realizes what happens, which we talked about. But we did. You can go listen to that episode to hear about my yeah. frustrations with that. But so anyway, the biggest set of things that are going on now is like, okay, we need to figure out who who did this. There's this whole. Oh, spat we've also introduced that Kay is pregnant and Michael's obsessed with it being a boy. Yeah, great look on him. Also, everybody's really shitty to Connie about her absentee parent parenting but like nobody gets on to michael who is like the most absentee parent in the entire franchise like he we only ever see him interact with one of his kids like 
one time. He didn't give a shit about his daughter. I, don't, I wonder if he knows what her name is. He never, he like never asks about her, like never talks to her. He interacts with his son once. Yeah, he's not a good father. Okay, so attack on his life. We know that some of the, the what, the Rosati brothers, was that it? The uh, Sure, there's a faction in New York. Because they're yes. all located out and, in Lake Tahoe now, near mm-hmm. Vegas. And uh, Hyman Roth is involved as well. Um, there's so, like one of Michael's, like I guess, lieutenants or whatever. The guy whose name I can't say. <laughs> Frank. Pentangeli. Pentangeli. I'm just going to call him Frank. <laughs> Frankie. Um, yes. Frankie. Like wants to kill these brothers mm-hmm. and Michael's being like, no, because they work for Hyman Roth, who is like this um, big operator out of Miami. Well, because they're trying to go in on a casino deal. So like Michael's trying to like get this whole alliance together. Oh, don't explain it. The, they over explain all the business ins and outs way too much. And I'm like, I don't And care. he doesn't want it ruined by some like infighting in New York. Yeah. But like anyway, so. That guy's mad about that. So then Michael's like convinced that somebody, he's like, somebody set me up because of the whole Hyman Roth stuff. And I bet Hyman Roth set me up. First he's like, I bet Frank set me up. And then he's like, but I think Hyman Roth set me up. But the whole thing is he just tells multiple people that other people, he basically tells multiple people that other people set him up so that they'll like turn on each other. Basically, it's Michael trying to be clever and then the movie trying to be clever being like, oh, but who really set Michael up? But it's super obvious because Fredo gets a call in the middle of the night from someone who he's like pretending he doesn't know, but like clearly knows him. And we're like, Fredo did it, obviously. Like, frankly, I'm shocked that Fredo wasn't in on the whole movie one betrayal so like it's no like obviously Fredo did it so why are we going through all of these hoops and trying to like pretend like it was somebody else like clearly Fredo's working with someone it's all good but anyway Michael's trying to play Frank against Roth against whoever he thinks is involved internally he's like Tom you're the only one I can trust it's why I've lied to you and kept things from you which anytime anyone's like I've kept something from you because I love you that's bullshit that it run run they've kept stuff from you because knowledge is power and they want to keep the power for themselves well and tom totally gets it you can you can tell that tom is exasperated but he knows he can't get out like he just knows it i just see i think that they could all band together and just kill michael nobody likes him literally like michael's entire immediate family could just band together because they all hate him yeah and they're all close to him and he could like and would all be better off without him for sure anyway so it turns out there's some stuff in Cuba, too. Yep. So they're there trying to do a business deal and divide up Hyman Roth's, like, holdings. And Michael has one of his many monologues about, like, oh, yeah, I saw a rebel guy, like, basically blow up a car and mm-hmm. himself because he'd rather do that than, like, have the people win. And, like, they fight without getting paid, so they're going to win. And the way he says it, you're like, Michael thinks that he's the rebel. And I'm like... Oh, honey, 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 honey. You're the establishment. You pay your people. You are the establishment. Oh, and while they're there, he brings Fredo there. And Fredo's like, yeah, I've never been to Cuba. And I've never known any of these people. And there's like things so nervous and scared in Cuba that you're like, it's so obvious (laughs) that Fredo did this. And then they're like at this like weird show. And Fredo's like, yeah, this like weird 
sex club that like the Hyman Roth's right hand man showed me where it is and he's like calling him by a nickname mm-hmm. and all of this stuff and it's very clear that Fredo's in cahoots with Hyman Roth and then Michael signals to some guy we've never seen in our lives who like then is supposed to apparently like set up Fredo no, and kill Fredo he's been and around Michael. he's been around the whole film he he's like his main bodyguard oh, God. <laughs> who the fuck is that guy I don't ugh. don't worry about anyway. it he's his muscle and I was so, okay, I was so hopeful that this was going to be a repeat of the hospital scene. Like, so hopeful. See, I wasn't because I wanted this film to do something original that wasn't just a rehash of the first film, but worse. So anyway, he there's the party where you have the Cuban Revolution. He, like, kisses Fredo and is like, you've disappointed me. And it's like, okay, that I care about that because, like, I would just love for Michael Corleone to look at me and be like, you've disappointed me. I'd be like, fucking good. <laughs> I don't want your approval. Get the fuck out. And then I'd probably be killed. But you know what? I would go out in style. <laughs> Swearing like a sailor. Because Fredo, like, runs away. He, like, tells Fredo he's going to kill him and then is mad that Fredo runs away. He's like, no, Fredo, get in the car with me. You're still my brother. And I'm like, you literally just told him you're going to kill him? Like, of course he's going to run from you. Like, I didn't then think that he told like, him he was going to kill him. He basically told him he's going to kill him. He's like, I know it's you. And basically was like. But I'm, that's not the same like, as I'm going to kill you. And he ba- No, but what he said was basically, like, making it very clear that he was probably going to kill him. And then he's like, like surprised that Fredo like runs away and like hurt by it. Like it's very bizarre. I'm like, Michael, you treat people like shit. You can't be surprised when they want to run. <laughs> so then Fredo's like hiding out with Roth. There's multiple like attempts at trying to kill Roth and kill the person in Michael's organization, Frank, name who can't I can't pronounce, Pentangeli. Did I get it? Yes, you did. Yes. But there's multiple just trying to like off people in a very convoluted but somehow boring way. So yes, absolutely right. All of these like people trying to kill other people. Pentangeli, biggest thing here is he didn't actually get killed. And so that leads to a whole set of extremely boring Senate hearings where I wish more had happened. That Well, also, so this is the perfect example of something that this movie does multiple times where they set something up as if it's going Mm -hmm. to matter at all to the film. And then it doesn't. And then completely undermine it so that all they've done is waste your time. And that was the Senate hearings. Like, it's clear they're trying to set up a case against Michael Corleone. But again, it's very, like, the way it is written and shot and acted is very much in this, like, realistic, like, I'm watching C-SPAN sort of way, which... Right, and it is modeled after actual hearings. But, like, guess what, you guys... I I don't think I don't think Senate hearings are very interesting unless it, it's like current and has to impact your your daily life. Like I remember watching uh, the last ones that I probably really paid like a lot of attention to was the Kavanaugh ones mm-hmm. from 2018, I guess. And like those were like fairly interesting to me, but those were a lot lot more going on than these. Yeah, felt higher stakes, felt more tangible. Like it. Yeah. And the, the thing that really, uh, I guess, annoys the shit out of me is that Pentan- their whole case hinges on Pentangeli, and all they do is bring in this, like, brother of his from Sicily, and it just kills everything. And so what was even the point? And, like, the implication is that, like, I guess he's scared of his brother, maybe, yeah. or something. But, like, yeah, it, it, it just undermines everything. It kills everything. It makes those Senate hearings 
not matter at all. And it's not like you could say like, oh, look at how wide Michael's reach is. We've seen it. We saw it all of this movie and we saw it Mm -hmm. all of the first one. Like we fully get how well connected and powerful he is and how willing he is to abuse that power and how willing he is to lie, cheat, steal, kill, whatever. I don't need to see it again in such a meaningless way. And that's, I mean, even, and, and I hate to, to say more violence is the answer here, but even if like Pentangeli had been assassinated in grand fashion during a hearing, that would have been like, I don't know, somewhat more effective, I think. Well, that's only, that only is effective if they then get Michael. Like when going into the Senate hearings, I was like, oh, are they going to take him down? Is it going to be like an Al Capone type thing where they get him on racketeering and like, or perjury. no, like nothing happens. Yeah. Or perjury, which like they say they're going to do at some point, but then don't like. Well, yeah. Cause Pentangeli doesn't testify. <laughs> it really is one of those things where you're like, this, this is doing nothing. As part of this as well, we do get Kay trying to leave. And this is another situation where I'm like, again, it ends with Michael slapping, slapping her, her and throwing because her down she reveals the, the that couch. it wasn't a miscarriage, which when he hears that she had a miscarriage, I'm like, one, do you just not talk to your family at all? Two, his only yeah. question is like, well, was it a boy? And I'm like, well, if it was a girl, would you not care? Which the answer is no, he wouldn't. And two, no one checks in on Kay's mental health, which I was very worried about Kay's mm-hmm. mental health when she had a miscarriage because that's a very traumatizing experience. Well, it turns out instead she's had an abortion, which is also like traumatizing, but like also your body, your choice, Kay. I fully back you up on this. And her whole reasoning is like, I didn't want to have another one of your kids. I didn't want to bring your kid mm-hmm. into this violent world because she knows what's going to happen to her kids like she knows that there's a good chance that they die because of the danger that her husband and his business and his family puts them in she also knows there's a good chance if she has two kids or i guess two sons because apparently daughters can't do anything in this world if she has two sons there's a good chance one of them kills the other like can you like you can't blame her for not wanting that and michael just gets really mad at her and slaps her and is like i'm not gonna let you leave and i'm not gonna let you take my children it's like they're her children too they're probably actually more her children than your children because you know she's the one raising them you never deal with them like you don't care about your children because they're like as people as human beings you want to foster and you want to grow and you want to create a better life for you care about them as you would a possession they are a thing that is yours that you can show off and you can use as you want. And that's why he wants them. Like he just wants Kay and his kids because they're his and they're objects and he doesn't care about them at all. Yeah. And from from a character perspective, totally agree with everything that you said. I thought the dialogue here was extremely poorly written. You could tell that it was very much like a man writing this dialogue. and. Yeah in a way that that belies a complete misunderstanding of what Kay was actually going through. And that just in, in infuriated me. And Diane Keaton is doing her best to like do something with it. Horrible dialogue. Something. And so props to her for trying. But it yes, just... Yes, I also uh, hate where Michael is just like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. It's like, you don't get to say that about your family. Right. Like you, you don't. Like you just... You don't get to say, I don't want to hear it anytime somebody says that, like, they have an issue or they're going through something or, like, they're or they're mad and they're done. Like, you you have to sit there and listen, especially if it's 
your fault, which all of this is Michael's fault. Like it is, he is the one to blame for basically every bad thing that happens in this movie. And then at the beginning too, when Kay is basically like, I'm taking the kids and I'm leaving when he tries to manipulate her back. And he's like, I've had some things on my mind that I want to talk to you about. And like, I think there are some things we can change. Like, again, it's all about him. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you really actually cared to listen and change, then when she's actually bringing up the hard conversation and like trying to explain to you like what sort of mental and emotional state she is in, that like you have created a world and an environment that is so dangerous for her and her existing kids that she does not want another one and that she does not love you anymore and she doesn't want to be with you because of what you've become, then you would listen to it. If you genuinely wanted to change, which Michael doesn't genuinely want to change. He's a psychopath. He's a mass murderer and a psychopath. Yeah. But this again, like I, this was part where I'm like the juxtaposition of Vito and Michael in this case, I think does serve to highlight how much colder Michael is. I mean, to emphasize it, but we already know. Exactly. We already knew this from the first one. Michael doesn't change or anything. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, when we already knew everything in this film that we quote unquote learn about Michael, we already actually knew from the first film, he doesn't change at all, or we don't learn anything new. So actually, if you just had a second film that was all about Vito, you could just watch and then if the first film had focused more tightly on Michael the way we had wanted it to, then you actually could have just watched the two films back to back and gotten the juxtaposition. It would have been a lot more effective. Yeah. So Kay is out of the picture we get like a quick scene later on that shows her like visiting in secret. I, again, don't Connie has, so Connie has come back to the family. And again, this is dialogue that was clearly written by a man. She's literally like kneeling in front of Michael. And I was like, Connie, she does the whole kiss the Godfather ring thing. And it's Uh, so bad. Honestly, I feel like to a certain extent, Connie did that because she's actually trying to like help take care of some people like Fredo, who she's like, Michael, like, Fredo's your brother. Like, let him back in the family. He's sorry. He's not going to do anything. Like, just keep him out of the business part, and, like, he'll be okay. Um, She's, again, helping Kay secretly visit Mm -hmm. her own kids because it's clearly a tragic tragic situation where Michael won't let her have any contact with her kids, Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that she was definitely the primary caregiver, and he's terrible. So Connie actually is coming out looking the most rosy out of anybody in this film because i feel like she kind of went back to a situation that she was clearly not good for her in a family that clearly has never treated her right for other people and in order to do good for other people yeah so anyway fredo has been basically disowned because of the the attempt on michael's life which shocker totally saw that coming why was anybody surprised i bet i bet there were a lot of people who were disappointed too that he didn't succeed i was one of them we also see Fredo being more of a father to Michael's son than Michael ever was. Mm-hmm. That's like the one thing Fredo was always better at than everybody else. Yeah. And so, again, his Michael's siblings are just so much better than he is on many, And many, they're not many, great. Many <laughs> and they're not great. No, Fred- Fredo's a bit of a piece of work. Connie's the best one, and Connie still has some questionable stuff. I mean, yeah, like her her decisions to effectively abandon her family with her new, I guess, fiance. Though I don't, I, I yeah, I'm I'm a little sad about her abandoning her kids, but I also do not at all blame her for abandoning the family, considering yeah. that like 
she was in a horrible abusive marriage in and the first one and the only one who tried to do anything was Sunny. And then we also see in a flashback later they've just always treated her like shit. Yep. So I, I guess broadly the last bit of film here I think of as cleaning up quote loose ends at least from Michael's perspective. AKA like four different endings because I guess somebody couldn't decide what to actually end on. Yeah. So Roth is assassinated in very public fashion when he comes back to the U.S. after unsuccessfully trying to stay in Israel for the remainder of his supposedly terminal illness. I think there was a line somewhere where they're like, he's been about to die for like 20 years. Yeah, dying of the same heart attack for 20 years, which that that was kind of funny. Pentangeli is visited by uh, Tom and basically, in not so many words, told to commit suicide. So his family's taken care of. Yeah, they have that whole talk about the Romans. I This movie loves to try and talk in like highfalutin metaphors. Like they try and make it like real cerebral and it's not. Yeah, it's pretty transparent. To, to, use, to use some Latin, a little plebeian. <laughs> and then the last, I guess, loose end is, is Fredo. So Mama Corleone's dead. Fredo's on the boat fishing. I actually kind of liked the way this was shot. It's okay, but it's stupid. There's no reason to kill Fredo. At this point, there is no reason to kill Fredo. Like, if he was going to kill Fredo, it should have happened earlier. Like, why welcome him back in and then, like, have him killed later, like, much later? Like, there's literally no reason for it. It's clear that Fredo's being kept out of the family business. It's clear that Fredo's keeping himself out of the family business and is kind of just, like, doing what he needs to do to not get killed he gets killed anyway there's nothing anybody gains from this it's just fucking stupid it's like how when michael had carlo killed in the first one and he gave him that huge spiel of like you're gonna fly to nevada and you're gonna stay stay there only to garrot him in the car like why go through the dramatics i know because you're super prima donna dramatic person michael but not even in like a fun way just like an eye rolly way and i hate that character so much i know I will, and I, I know I'm kind of a broken record with this, but again, it's so am I. the millionth like tick mark against Michael as a character that shows that he's willing to go so far as to just be petty about this when now he's just alone. Like, it's just him and his compound. Cry me a fucking river. Why are we sad, Michael? Oh, and he has, we have the flash, the needless flashback to like the Christmas dinner where everybody's being shitty to Connie. And Michael's like, I did join up for the war. And they're like trying to pretend like Michael was once noble, although I'm pretty sure he wasn't judging from like his actions in the first film, even before he like, quote unquote, joined the family business or whatever. I'd never buy that Michael was ever a fully selfless like person. Because we've never seen anything but, like, random anger from him. And anyway, it's him alone at the dining table. And it's like, look, he's always been an outsider. He's just, he's alone. And now he's alone in his compound. Well, fucking good, Michael. I'm glad you're alone. Well, and one could probably argue that that's a commentary on how you shouldn't be a shitty person so you're not alone. But if only we could have had that commentary, like, at any point... Before the last like fifteen minutes of the film. Oh, see, I saw that. I saw that coming, like Havana time frame. Like, oh, with like Fredo. him just being alone. But like, I didn't care, and I was like, of course he ends up alone. Like, it's not. I didn't need a three-hour and fifteen-minute movie to tell me that. I just know that. It's rather indulgent. It's called being decent. Yes. So. 
anyway, I definitely ended that thinking, what, what, so what? Um, so to be clear, I share a lot of Maggie's opinions on this. I just decided to step out of the way and let the the uh, roast train go. Um. <laughs> it can't, it could not be stopped. <laughs> so I, again, I, the veto pieces I think are what kept me going because I honestly did find that storyline to be somewhat engaging and would have loved to have seen that fully fleshed out in its own like story, own movie. Um, but I can't stand Michael Corleone. Oh God, I can't either. I, I sort of mourned the veto parts because I saw in it such potential for what could have been, yeah. I think, a very engaging, really good film. And then it was just like chopped up and inserted in random parts between this just horrible narrative about a horrible character who I don't care about. And I just feel empty mm-hmm. but not like a good like this movie really like rocked me emotionally and made me think about a lot of things empty just kind of like i was really really angry and frustrated empty yeah so anyway didn't find it particularly visually interesting there was some good shots some good lighting but like I, really only I didn't here think it was as good technically. Yeah, it wasn't as good technically as the first one, I didn't think. So I, yeah, the veto piece made it okay for me. <laughs> but that that's the best I have to say. Um, so I guess should we move into lists? The fun part. Let's move into lists. Okay, cool. I'm going to keep mine pretty sweet. I think given all of the ranting I've done for the episode, it's pretty obvious why I'm putting this where I'm putting it. Um, it's my new number 35. So after Gentleman's Agreement, which I think also struggled from like some writing and some not great performances and stuff, but which had like, I think it was like the last, what, like half hour of that movie or something was incredibly good and incredibly impactful. And that movie did actually make me like think about some stuff. And, um, I just, I thought there, it had an actual message, (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So this goes under that. It's above Around the World in 80 Days um, because Around the World in 80 Days also just kind of wandered aimlessly and didn't really have a message and I think was a little bit longer potentially. (laughs) So it might have like wandered a little bit longer. Um, Pretty much everything I have under The Godfather is something that like either just like has no like it's basically like around the world in 80 days which just like kind of had no message and just is kind of like long and rambling and and had parts that need to be trimmed as well so a lot of the same issues as godfather part two or it's something that was like very very deeply flawed and like it's very basic construction yeah though i do have the greatest show on earth below it and frankly i enjoyed that film more I would, even if I enjoyed it more, I would still, like, I also have The Greatest Show on Earth below it, and I, I, I think it is a worse film on the whole. Yeah, yeah. So it's not not high for me. So, yeah, I think I put mine actually a little bit lower than you. <laughs> so uh, Godfather 2 is now my new number 39, and so it does put it after Around the World in 80 Days, but before Gigi. Okay, so we have it We have it kind of around the same area, though. Yeah, because I have it just above Around the World in 80 Days, and then it goes My Fair Lady Gigi for me. And and so for me with Around the World, um, 
I think the visuals of Around the World like really pulled that in front of The Godfather for me. So I, if I haven't already said it, I found the majority of The Godfather 2 to be fairly pedestrian when it came to the visuals. Like there were scenes here or there, but Around the World in 80 Days... I'm just remembering things being much more grand and sweeping and from a visual perspective, engaging. Mm -hmm. Gigi just like, it just doesn't feel as well put together, which is saying something comparing it to Godfather 2. Gigi didn't have the redemption of the little bit of veto that we got. Exactly. So it just, I don't know. I, I, as a movie, even though I don't particularly like either of them, um, I won't really be watching think either Godfather of them again. Two is above. Yeah. Oh, I don't plan to. So yeah, I I know a lot of people love the Godfather series. I just don't see it. I think it's a lot of time invested for not a lot of payoff. Agreed. And I I under I think I can get where people are coming from with the first one a lot more than I can with the second one. Yeah. I agree with that. I wonder if with the people who said that they thought the second one was better, is it because they really liked the veto storyline? I'm not sure. I didn't. And do, do they do they remember that. that that's like less than a third of the movie? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. Um, but yeah. Anyway, glad to leave the Godfather series behind. Yeah, the only time we will ever have to watch another one is that the third one did get nominated for Best Picture. So if we go back and do all the nominees, we will have to watch that one. Well, but this is also Um, our podcast where we get to do what we want because it's our podcast. That's true. So (laughs) anyway, um, I'm just excited for the 48th winner next episode, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. How long until we get to watch Rocky? (laughs) Uh, after, After that one. It's fine. Okay, okay, good. So we're, um, cuz I've suffered a lot to get to that one and that's one I'm really, not despair. really looking forward to. Okay. Well, I, it's hard not to. Um and I know I know the whole premise of Once Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So I know that one's going to be a rough one, but it should be a good rough one if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Cool. So until next time, you can find us on social media. We are at Best Pictures Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know if you agree or disagree on our assessment of this trilogy or I guess two parts of this trilogy, or you can email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. I know we've been um, a little bit spottier on our um, activity and uh, a little bit of our posting like in August than we have been in the past, Um, but we're trying to ramp back up and get back on schedule. Uh, Just bear with us, guys. I know I'm currently in a very, very busy season for my work uh, for the next few months, um, I know Ian probably has some other stuff coming up as well, but we are trying our best and we appreciate you guys like us. hanging in yes. there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, definitely join us next time. Um, hopefully on schedule for, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Scratch that. Actually, I just realized it's September because I don't know about anybody else, but my concept of time, not great during quarantine and COVID. We actually will be during our like in the middle of our holiday programming on the next one. I oh geez, it's already October time. It's like... already October. We gotta <laughs> we gotta start thinking of a theme, man. Um, oh no, okay. I know we've we've bandied a couple about. Maybe we'll uh we'll tweet out and see if our listeners have any suggestions or any requests for holiday movies, holiday topics. I like it. So yeah, scratch that. Uh, not one flew over the cuckoo's nest. We will be doing some fun Halloween episodes. Hopefully, we can scare well, the shit out of Maggie spooky. again because uh, those are always fun. I, mm, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, 
I'm, we're going to do a Twitter poll and I'm going to rig it so that it's like the least scary option. <laughs> Oh, dear. Anyway, thanks for listening. And as Maggie said, sticking through us uh, with us through all of these, uh, you know, crazy times. But um, look forward to our next holiday episodes. <laughs>